Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Episode 4, The Island at the Edge of the World, Part 2. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to James, Lizanne, and Tyler for joining up already. This episode covers 55 BCE and centers around Julius Caesar's first invasion of Britannia. Let's catch you up. Caesar is in Britannia with the 7th and 10th legions, has fought a single battle, and has subsequently received the surrender of the surrounding tribes. But basically, after that first landing battle, the Brits had had enough. This cold and eerily silent group of foreigners were just too well-armed, too well-organized, and just too effective in the battlefield. Peace was the only way to deal with people such as this. So for four days, the Brits from the surrounding area came to Caesar to surrender. And on the fourth day, Caesar's cavalry finally set sail. Do you remember them? The 500 cavalry that embarked at a different port from the rest of Caesar's army? Well, yeah, they were finally on their way. And that was really good news because the Britons had chariots, and that made them irritatingly speedy. While Caesar had won on the battlefield, he was probably all too aware that he was still exposed so long as the Britons could quickly move throughout the island unchecked. And frankly, until the Romans could ride the Britons down, he wouldn't be able to stamp out any further resistance. And despite whatever legal pretenses he was giving, that was essentially what Caesar wanted to accomplish here. An end to British resistance, and consequently, an end to their interference with his affairs in Gaul. And after that, they would be easily annexed. So, this fleet was no doubt a very big relief for the general. And actually, because of the size of the channel and the scale of the fleet, the Romans encamped in Britannia were probably able to see the ships as they crossed. And seeing the approaching ships must have brought a wave of excitement throughout the camp. However, that elation was not to last, and a storm suddenly rose up. Oceanus was apparently displeased, because this particular storm was extremely violent. Imagine the chaos on those ships. You had the Romans, who were not accustomed to sailing on the ocean, dealing with high seas and brutal winds. And to complicate matters, the fleet was weighed down with horses, who were likely as terrified, if not more so, than their handlers. And have you ever heard a terrified horse? It's pretty disconcerting. And they're big. So high seas, big screaming, kicking horses, and an angry ocean god. I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but if the Romans wore trousers, which they didn't, they probably would have had to change them. So yeah, they buckled under the pressure of the elements and fought their way back to the continent. And there, they stayed. Caesar commanded an awful lot of respect and loyalty from his troops, but apparently not enough. There would be no cavalry for this expedition. Now that same storm was also felt in Britannia, and it was accompanied by a high tide. You see, it was a full moon, and the Romans had little to no experience with tides, and didn't know how to predict them. If they had known about these things, they probably would have pulled their ships farther up the beach, and they probably would have better anchored the ships that were just too large to be pulled up. But they didn't, and so they were caught entirely unprepared. As the storm raged, the tide swelled, 
and the beach ships were dragged back out to sea and smashed together. Meanwhile, the ships that were left riding at anchor were either lost in the tempest or gravely damaged. This was a tough day. And Caesar's men must have been a bit terrified by all of this. I mean, it looked very much like the mighty god Oceanus had turned against them. And now, in just a few hours, thanks to the intervention of this god, they had gone from conquering southern Britannia to being trapped there without any means for retreat or resupply. Caesar was strong, but was he strong enough to contend with a god? This must have shaken them to their core. And even for the men who weren't religious, their situation was still dire. I mean, they had only intended to engage in a short expedition, which meant they didn't bring enough food stocks to sustain them over the winter. And now, all of a sudden, there was a very real possibility of starvation. So, upon seeing this disaster and Caesar's precarious position, the British chiefs determined that their best course of action was to deny the invaders any opportunity to acquire food or provisions and then defeat them in battle before they had a chance to regroup. If they could break this army, perhaps the Romans would be so demoralized that they wouldn't be eager to return. It wasn't outside the realm of possibility. And so one by one, they left the Roman camp and secretly organized their warriors in the surrounding countryside. You can imagine the woods and plains were bustling with British activity. And word probably quickly spread. Even if they were taking advantage of the natural cover of the terrain to hide their painted warriors and chariots, Caesar must have been able to see the writing on the wall. He was no fool, after all. He had little time, and he needed to get the hell off this island. But if he couldn't escape immediately, he at least needed some food. Moreover, fear is contagious, and if his men had time to ponder their situation, it wouldn't be long before their morale would be utterly broken. So Caesar, acting with his characteristic quick and decisive manner, split his men into two alternating groups. One legion would forage for grain, which was just a really nice term for stealing everything that was edible, while the other was put to work repairing the fleet by using the brass and timber from the twelve most damaged ships. However, this meant that Caesar's defenses were weakened. Half of his men would be away, while the other half weren't guarding, but rather were working on the ships. So who would defend the camp? Well, he had planned for this, and so Caesar always kept some cohorts behind to act as guards. It's not the best of solutions since there weren't that many men left to guard, but it's better than nothing. And it both kept the men busy and ensured that they were moving ever closer to their ultimate goal, to get off this island. Caesar was back at camp, overseeing the repair of the ships, when he saw an unusual amount of dust in the area where he dispatched the 7th Legion to forage. That is not a good sign. His men might be in trouble. But what to do? If he gathered all his remaining troops to investigate, and it turned out to be nothing, he would be leaving the camp completely undefended. But if he did nothing, and his men were in trouble, he could potentially lose a legion. So he chose to gather two cohorts who were already on guard and go investigate the situation personally. It isn't stated whether he ordered the legion who was on repair duty to stand guard while he was away, but my guess is that he probably did exactly that. And so Caesar, along with less than a thousand men, marched towards the dust. And when he crested the hill, his fears were confirmed. 
The 7th Legion were crowded together and lacked any avenue for retreat, as they were under attack on all sides by a vast army of enraged Britons, who dwarfed the Legion in numbers. The discipline and strength of the Legion was famous, but it was starting to waver. These strange and ferocious painted warriors were driving their chariots straight into their flanks, using the size of their horses and the weight of their chariots to break through them. And then, with the Roman organization shattered, the warriors who were riding on the backs of the chariots leapt off and engaged the legion in personal combat. Meanwhile, the charioteers rode through, collected more warriors, and renewed their attack. Sometimes the British warriors would lose ground, and the tide of battle would turn on them. And in those moments, the charioteers would be dispatched to barge through the Roman ranks, gather the warriors, and transport them to safety. This was exactly the sort of combat that the Britons excelled at. They were bringing their brand of heroic combat, as well as guerrilla tactics, right into the center of the Roman machine of war. And this allowed the Britons to have the strength and flexibility of an infantry unit, while also having the speed and mobility of a cavalry unit. It was an unusual method of attack, and one that the legions weren't accustomed to defending against. Moreover, don't forget that the Romans were in a mythical land, so having these painted, half-naked natives ferociously charging into battle was causing their morale to tank. This was not helped by the Britons' display of skill and raw physicality. This wasn't simply a taxi service that was being offered to the warriors. The chariots would be driving at full gallop towards the Roman ranks, and they would do this even on the steepest of hills. And while they were charging forward, a warrior would sometimes run along the pole and stand on the yoke and strike at the Romans as they passed. Caesar and his men had never seen anything like this, and the athleticism of the British warriors was so awe-inspiring that even Caesar later wrote about it in his diaries. The 7th Legion, already terribly outnumbered, was scarcely able to hold its ground against this sort of attack. However, it was not the skill of their warriors that would ultimately win the day. It was discipline, and the Romans had that in abundance. Now, the British held the upper hand when they were fighting against just the 7th Legion, as they were able to force them to fight on multiple fronts. But with the approach of these reinforcements, however, the British were in danger of finding themselves in the same position. Caesar, if he maneuvered and organized properly, could potentially hem in the Britons. So, as the cohorts approached the battlefield, the British began to waver. Now, Caesar tells us that it was because they feared him. And this is certainly an interesting bit of insight regarding British perspectives coming from, oh yeah, coming from Caesar. So it's hardly an unbiased source. He might as well have just gone the full nine and written that the Britons feared his rippling abs. And we need to be clear on something here. Even though we call them diaries, it wasn't like Caesar was writing his personal thoughts. This isn't a dear diary sort of situation. You don't see any entries saying, dear diary, I'm having absolutely the worst day. I spent all day feeling like I was about to cry. And meanwhile, Brutus told me that I was an egotist, which I didn't think was very nice, especially coming from him. And my armor has been a bit tight lately. <sighs> Is that why Calpurnia hasn't written me lately? Am I getting fat? There's nothing like that, right? Though it would be awesome if there was. Instead, these diaries were written with the intent of being published. Caesar was telling Rome how amazing he was. These were propaganda pieces. So of course he's going to write about the Britons' cowardice and how they feared him. But in his defense, 
he might have misunderstood the Britons. After all, their style of warfare was wildly different from the Romans. And while Caesar saw this as a lack of morale amongst the British, it could just as easily have been differing tactics. The Britons very well might have been fighting guerrilla warfare, ambushing where possible, retreating and conserving their numbers when things got a bit too pitched. And with their advantage of having cavalry and chariots, not to mention actually, you know, knowing the surrounding area and having the support of the people, why not fight in such a manner? Anyway, with the approach of Caesar, the British morale did start to waver. And soon, the 7th Legion renewed their attack, bolstered by their knowledge that reinforcements had come. They gathered and pulled their ranks together while the Britons were distracted by the approach of Caesar, and once again, they focused the meat grinder that was the Roman method of war upon the Britons. Now the British warriors were facing a battle against these strange, silent, and coldly brutal foreigners on two fronts. They were strange, these foreigners. They didn't break, so they must have had courage. But where was their honor? None of them would engage in single combat. Instead, they hid behind their shields and advanced. But for all of their lack of honor, it was certainly an effective way to fight. And it wasn't long before the Britons realized that their best course of action was to retreat. The battle was over. Caesar and his men returned to camp, once again victorious. And to add to the drama of the event, as he returned, another storm rolled in. But unlike the prior storm, this was actually a stroke of luck for Caesar, because the heavy storms prevented any further British attacks for several days. The Britons just didn't feel like heading out if it was raining. Apparently, they had the same work ethic of modern British rail companies. And the Romans used this brief respite to repair their ships as quickly as possible. The British, of course, used the opportunity to gather more men from the surrounding tribes. What was a significant threat days before was only growing more intense. Those ships could not be built fast enough. The hills and woods were now swarming with Britons. The legions of Rome were skilled and effective, but how far could that possibly take them when facing numbers such as these? And these weren't just farmers unskilled in the ways of war. Britannia had a rich warrior tradition, and many of the painted warriors that were now keeping watch on the hills and woods around Caesar's encampment were veterans of many battles, and who knows how many heads they had taken in battle. And they were hungry for more trophies. And so, once the rain ceased, the British renewed their attacks upon the invading Romans. And their army was vast. When they had faced the 7th Legion, they fought their own style of war. But now much of the South had come to fight. And the confidence that those numbers have brought them is probably why they decided to fight Caesar on his own terms. This wasn't a quick strike, utilizing their superior mobility to harry and break legions. Instead, the British gathered and engaged in a large-scale organized battle. Exactly the sort of battle that the legions of Rome excelled at. This is what the men under Caesar's command needed. Their training and experience kicked in. The strange chariot strikes confused them, but an organized battle between large groups of men? This really was something they could sink their teeth into. Muscle memory was triggered. Ranks were regularly rotated. Spears were hurled. And the Romans did as they were trained to do. Steadily, methodically, and with an almost industrial precision, they slaughtered any Britons who came into range. This was a battle that the Britons were wholly unprepared for. 
Theirs was a world of personal combat and individual valor. These Romans all looked the same, fought the same, and wouldn't come to fight them in person. And their skill and training had little use once they were in the middle of the crush, barely able to move. They were shoulder to shoulder and were slaughtered where they stood. Their comrades moved in, eager to kill the Romans, and probably had to step over broken and bloodied bodies to get to the front lines. But they didn't last long either. And so, despite their superior numbers and clear athletic ability, and their individual military skill, the Britons could not break Caesar's men. And soon, it was the Britons who turned and fled. The Britons had fallen into a common trap in war. Their strategy didn't complement their tactics. They wanted to bleed the forces of Rome and force them from the island. They knew from their contacts on the continent that the legions were gifted in large-scale organized warfare. But they didn't need to engage them on that level in order to accomplish their goals. This was their land, and they could have used their superior knowledge in order to engage in further attacks similar to what they had done to the 7th Legion. They could have ambushed them, sabotaged their efforts to repair their ships, and engaged in raids against any groups of Roman soldiers who strayed too far from the protection of their brothers. If they kept the pressure up, they probably could have bled and starved the Romans out. After all, if the Romans became afraid of the countryside, they wouldn't have been able to go forage for food, and the impending starvation would have significantly weakened the force. They would have accomplished all of their goals and utilized what they knew worked. So what I'm saying is there was a better way to do this. But whatever the reason, they did choose to meet Caesar on his own terms, even though few armies at the time would have been able to withstand a Roman force that had the time to select a battlefield and make a plan of attack and carefully arrange its forces. So, you know, oops. However, Caesar lacked cavalry, and so the British retreat was unchallenged. And that's really good news for the Britons. Because had the cavalry been present, it's entirely possible that the British host would have been utterly destroyed. But that doesn't mean that Caesar dealt with this attack kindly and just let it go. Just because he couldn't catch the warriors didn't mean that he couldn't seek revenge. And so he turned his anger upon the local population. He unleashed his legions, and they pillaged and burned everything in sight. Consider what a shock this would have been for the British leadership. Sure, they had a warrior culture where intertribal warfare was common, but ultimately, the British were farmers. And even if a region was conquered and annexed into another tribe, the new lands would be worthless without the farms. And farms are worthless without farmers. Fight the warriors. Hell, even kill the warriors if you have to, and display their heads if you really want to hammer home the point. But burning the farms and killing everyone? That's a move that even the most tyrannical of British chiefs probably didn't consider. I mean, if nothing else, it's just bad business. But these Romans didn't care. At all. They were slaughtering everything that moved, and burning everything that didn't. This wasn't warfare in the manner that they were accustomed to. These men probably looked like monsters to the Britons. Upon seeing this disaster, the British leadership was horrified and realized that they needed to appease these foreigners or they would lose everything. So ambassadors were sent once again, asking for peace. But it was pretty clear that Caesar was, well, he was a bit ticked off. So he doubled the number of hostages he demanded after the first fight. 
and probably because he was absolutely sick of Britannia and he didn't want to stay one moment longer than necessary, he insisted that they deliver the hostages to the continent. The chiefs agreed to his demands, and with that, Caesar set sail at midnight. Screw this island. And fun fact, only two of the British tribes actually honored their agreement with Caesar and sent the hostages. The rest of the Britons basically told him where he could shove it. Maybe they had their fingers crossed when they made the agreement. Who knows? And the really crazy thing is that despite the seriously precarious position of Caesar from essentially the moment he set sail for Britannia, the Senate decreed that Caesar's expedition was a success. What exactly was the success he accomplished here? He made it there, but the landing site had to be switched on the fly because his navigator was an idiot, and when he arrived, he found the ambassadors and communists had sucked at their jobs so immensely that he immediately had to fight a pitch battle in deep water with a bunch of Britons. And then they got their butts kicked by a storm so bad that they lost a bunch of their ships, and his cavalry decided to just stay home. And then, after dealing with a nasty ambush and an even nastier open battle, he finally managed to get the Britons to promise to give him hostages— but most of the British ambassadors were only kidding, so he didn't even get all that many hostages. Oh, and he had to set sail at midnight before anything else horrible happened. I mean, this doesn't look like a success. It looks like a narrow escape. So that's what we're going to call it, an escape. And his escape from the island had far more to do with the lack of strong British leadership at the time than it had to do with any individual brilliance on his part. And he must have been aware of that. If the British were well-organized, he would have been in serious trouble. He just lucked out. This was not a success. Unless surviving counts as success. In that case, we're all successes. Seriously, he gained pretty much nothing, and I guarantee you that some of his men were killed in these fights. He's just lucky it wasn't a disaster. And yet, the Senate issued a supplicatio of 20 days. 20 days! That's crazy! I mean, that was the longest they'd ever done up until that point. All right, I probably should explain what a supplicatio was, since it's not commonly known. So what many people imagine when they think of Roman celebrations are triumphs, right? Triumphs were enormous parades that were basically a gigantic party. A triumph would have been one hell of a thing to witness, and probably would have been the highlight of the year, if not your entire life. They were huge, and fun, and awesome in both senses of the word. A supplicatio is a little bit different. It was more somber and holy, and it was essentially a supplication before the gods. The temples would all open, statues of the gods would be brought out and placed upon couches, because, I mean, you kind of want your gods to be comfy, and all the people would make their thanksgivings and prayers. But that isn't to say it was a sad affair. This was still a holiday, but it was focused more upon thanking the gods for whatever they'd given Rome. In this case in bringing Roman sandals to Britannia. Now, there certainly was some jubilation with this holiday, but the point I'm driving at is that it wasn't an ostentatious triumph. And until the 20 days long supplicatio for Caesar's invasion of Britannia, the longest one was 15 days, and that was for Caesar's victory over the Belgae. Typically, these things only lasted 10 days. In fact, the supplicatio for Pompey's recent victory was only 10 days long. And yet Rome was rocking for a solid 20 days, a double supplicatio, which suggests that the people of Rome were quite excited about the prospect of bringing the island at the edge of the world within her borders. 
It also suggests that Caesar was a rock star in Rome. And he really was. This guy was so cool that he even started a new fashion for how you wore your toga. Seriously, look it up. And so, sort of like how people were suddenly wearing flannel after grunge became cool, many of the young nobles of Rome were wearing their togas like Caesar did. Rockstar. Sure, there were people who hated him, and some of them were quite murderous in their hatred, but in general, he was supreme. And the supplicatio shows how much the people loved him and his recent invasion of Britannia. So I take it back. Maybe this was a success, at least as far as public relations are concerned, and that really was one of Caesar's major focuses in life. And I guess he did manage to gather important military intelligence, and that would be useful for further invasions. For example, he learned the methodology and character of the British warriors, developed a tactic for defeating their war chariots, and he determined that an army could forge enough grain to sustain an invasion if needs be. And he also learned that you really shouldn't land at Dover. It's just bad news. Caesar's invasion, in the end, was not so much a victory, but rather it was a prelude to what would follow in 54 BCE. And we'll talk about that next episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we have all kinds of communities. We have Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, we even have a Pinterest. We have the forums. There's all kinds of stuff. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.